If you have a Bible, please open to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6. The last time I preached a stewardship series was 2003. Next time someone says, oh, that church ever wants is money, you can say, now my church, we went 16 years without a stewardship series. And so I apologize for waiting so long to teach on this topic, but our church, I believe most of us already get it. Our series title is, It's All God's. And the reason I titled it All God's, because it's all God's. Uh, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. He owns everything. We've looked at his ownership. We've looked at our work ethic. We've looked at how to manage what God gives to us. And today I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I have treasure in heaven? Are you saving for your future? Are you saving for your eternal future? Well, would you please stand with me as I read one of the many teachings Jesus gave to us about money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us so much that you would send your son to die for us and rise again and take away the penalty of our sin. Now, Lord, help us. Help us to hate our sin. Help us to love you. If there be one that is not saved in this worship center today, may the Spirit of God convict them of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. May you bring them to yourself. May your love draw them to yourself. Father, help each Christian now to listen to the words of Jesus and prepare for our heavenly future. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Once upon a time, long, long ago, there lived a king in Asia Minor, and his name was Midas, and he wanted more and more and more. He loved gold. He loved it so much to touch it, to look at it. He worshipped it. And as the Greek fairy tale goes, one of the gods gave Midas what? The touch of, the touch of gold. And everything he touched, it turned to gold. And he was thrilled, as you can imagine. I mean, he touched the rocks on the terrace, and they turned to golden nuggets. He picked up an apple to satisfy his hunger. Oops, it turned to gold. He sat down on his most favorite and most comfortable chair, but it turned to solid, cold, hard gold. His little girl uh, ran to meet him on the terrace with a big smile with cries, Daddy, Daddy, Dad. And when he touched her, she turned to gold. By nightfall, the whole palace was gold. There was dead silence. There was no conversation. There was no music. There was no laughter. And all of his golden servants did not move. And he lay his body down in his golden bed and his head upon his golden pillow. And King Midas realized he was the most miserable man upon the earth. Rich? Oh, you bet. Lots of gold, more than he could have ever imagined. But his greed and his desire for more, his love of money, had cost him everything that was really important to him. His family, his happiness, and his contentment. He now hated what he once coveted. One version of the story says Dionysius told him that everything he put in the river would reverse the touch of gold. Now, the story is a fairy tale, but the message is not. Greed and desire for more things, it's not just a problem for rich people. Is it only the rich that spend a quarter of their paycheck on lottery tickets? Are the casinos flooded only by rich people? No, no, no. I mean, lower and middle and upper class 
people all struggle with greed and a desire for more, and many Christians are plagued with greed as well. And I have good news. I have good news that God's Word has all of the answers you need for your money problems. God's Word has all of the answers you need for the worries that are in your life right now. God's Word contains the secrets for happiness in this life and eternal joy in the next. And so today we come to Matthew 6, a fantastic teaching by Jesus about our money and about our stuff. Now, let me give you the context here. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is one sermon. It's called what? It's called the Sermon on the, the, sermon on the Mount. And Jesus preached this message actually about a year and a half after he began his public ministry. The last three Sunday nights, we put in order for you the chronology of the life of Christ, and some of you know the events of the life of Christ, and you can do the hand signs. So go ahead and, and set your pen down, get your hands up, and, and you can help, and, and you'll show others how this works. Uh, but you can do the hand signs with me. So here we go. We're going to pick it up with, with the Jordan baptized by John. Come on, Jordan baptized by John. Uh, wilderness tempted by Satan. Perea first followers, Cana, first miracle. Uh, Judea, Jerusalem is the first cleansing. John chapter 2, that's the cleansing of the temple. And then you have the second birth. And that's John chapter 3, that's Nicodemus. And then you have Samaria, Sychar, and you have what? You have the woman of the well, and that's John chapter 4, and you got the welcome at the city. And then he goes to Nazareth, and that's where there is rejection. And then so he goes over to Capernaum for his headquarters, and there is the selection of the twelve and the sermon on the mount. Okay, so for the rest of us, you say, what in the world are you doing? All right, you go to the church website, you go to uh, uh, Watch On Demand, you go to the Sunday night tabs, and you click on the messages walking in the footsteps of Jesus, and you'll, you'll put it all together. In two minutes, you have the life of Christ all together. And so you have a, a year and a half from when Jesus was baptized by John, a year and a half later, here you come to the Sermon on the Mount. And now Jesus draws a line in the sand. And this is what he says. He says, you have a choice. And the choice is you either live this way or you live that way. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, then this is what you do. This is how you live. In fact, in chapter 7, Jesus says there are only two kinds of people on the earth. He did not identify people by their race. He did not identify people by their age. He did not identify people by their economic status or by their sexual identity. He identified them this way. You either know God or you don't know God. You're either saved or you're lost. There's only two kinds of, of people in the world. And so in Matthew 7, 13, Jesus said, he said there is a, a narrow road and a narrow gate, and that narrow road and that narrow gate, it's him. And so you're either on the broad road that's going to destruction, or you're on the narrow road, the way of Jesus Christ. Two destinies, you'll spend eternity in heaven, or you'll spend eternity in hell. Now you'd better, you'd better believe what Jesus said. You better believe it because he is God in human flesh. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Jesus warned more people about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Why? Because he loves us. Because he does not want anyone to go to that awful place of destruction. And so he gave his life to die upon a, upon a cross to take your hell to give us a gift, and that gift is heaven. And so here in Matthew 6, Jesus says there's two kinds of people. There's those, those who stockpile their riches. You either stockpile your riches on earth or you stockpile your riches in heaven. And so look with me here at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures. The words lay up and treasures comes from the same root. Uh, the, Eng the, the Greek word is thesaurus. Thesaurus. We get our English word what? Thesaurus, a treasury of words. So the idea is that of uh, stockpiling. It's the idea of hoarding someone who's, who's stacking their coins and counting them. Now here is something to think about. Jesus does not condemn our desire to accumulate treasure. 
In fact, he commands it in verse uh, 20. It's the location that is the key. He commands us to lay up treasure in heaven, and he condemns the laying up of treasure upon the earth. Look at the quote here from John Phillips. The passion for possessions is not reviled, but redirected. That's interesting. And so today, the Lord is asking each one of us, where is your treasure? Is your treasure on earth or is it in heaven? Do I have treasure in heaven? Would you say that out loud? Do I have treasure in heaven? We're going to find out. And so first of all, the treasures on earth. What do we treasure today? We treasure money. We treasure possessions. They treasured similar things. And the first thing Jesus pointed out was costly fabrics. Costly fabrics. Now the problem is, is rotting. Uh, fine clothing, shoes, wardrobe. Jesus said the moths are going to eat your expensive clothes. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth, the moths are going to eat them. Now how many of you use mothballs? Would you raise your hand? Okay, we had a bunch in the early service, mothballs. And you all are thinking, what in the world is a mothball? And so a mothball is something that stinks. It's awful. It's really bad. It stinks so bad that if you put the mothballs in your drawers or in your closet, it scares the moths away. And so you have a choice. You have a choice to use the mothballs and to stink or to have holy clothes, all right? And so that, that was their choice. And so, so uh, the second one uh, is already up here. It's expensive metals, also grains and oils. And the problem there is rusting. The first problem is rotting. Now the problem is rusting. Jesus, uh, Jesus he tells us, uh, he said, if you lay up your treasure upon earth, uh, the moth and the rust is going to corrupt it. It's going to eat it. It's going to destroy it. Here's a painting of the rich fool painted by Rembrandt, and, and he had such great profits. He's making such great money. Luke 12, Jesus said that the man says in his heart, what shall I do? I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. I will store my grain and my goods. And Jesus said, God says, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And you're going to leave it all behind. You're going to leave it all behind. The problem is the grain is eaten by rats and mice and worms and insects. And then about securing treasures, the problem is robbing. The idea of Jesus said about breaking in or digging through, it's a picture of a thief. He's digging through the mud wall in the middle of the night to get into the house or digging up a, a something, a hidden treasure in the field. Let me show you the scene of multiple diamond heists. This is in the French Riviera. This is the Carlton. In 2013, a single thief went in and he stole a bag of diamonds worth $136 million. Imagine that. That's a lot of money. Thieves stole $60 million from the same hotel uh, back in uh, 1994. And here's what's interesting. Uh, it was a movie set in 1955 of a famous Cary Grant and Grace Kelly movie. You guessed it? To catch a thief, all right? Uh, so here you got it. Uh, Jesus says uh, thieves are going to steal. And they did it then, and they're doing it today. Jesus warns that if we stockpile earthly treasure, we need to beware of that which rots, that which rusts, and that which robs. Now here's a better place to store your treasure, treasures in heaven. Verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We are to amass treasure in heaven. The moths can't hurt it. The heavenly treasures will not rust. The thieves, uh, no thieves in heaven to steal it. And that's what Jesus said. Uh, he said, neither moth nor rust doth corrupt where thieves do not break through nor steal. Heavenly security. Now here's what's insightful about Jesus' teaching. It's verse 21. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your giving is a thermometer of your love for God. Your heart, your passion. I mean, if you love God, your treasure's in heaven. If you love money and possessions, your treasure is on earth. Those are Jesus' words. And so the location of your treasure identifies where your heart is. 
Spiritual problems are always heart problems. Sinful acts come from a sinful heart, just as righteous acts come from a righteous heart. So, so the big question is, how do I get treasure in heaven? Bottom of page 2. Become a true follower of Jesus Christ. Truly become born again. If you are not going to heaven, you can't have treasure in heaven. Number two, grow in your faith. Grow in your faith. When you love the word of God, when you believe it, when you obey it, you're going to accept God's ownership. We saw that three weeks ago. You're going to work hard. You're going to obey the boss. We saw that two weeks ago. You're going to manage well, and we saw that last week. And then number three, you're going to give tithes and offerings. Now, I know most of our church family already understands this and does that. Praise God for that. But if you would turn back just a couple of pages to Malachi chapter 3, and I want you to see the Bible's teaching upon this, giving tithes and offerings weekly. This is right before the Gospel of Matthew. This is the last minor prophet. And so Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, God says, I'm the Lord, I change not. Uh, he said, if I changed, you'd be incinerated. Look at the end of the verse. Uh, Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. It's a good thing I don't change. It's a good thing my mercy is eternal and never changes. Otherwise, you would not draw another breath. Malachi 3, 7. Even from the days of your fathers, ye've gone away from mine ordinances. Ye've not kept them. Return unto me, God says, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord. Uh, God says, you, you, you've left me. He says, it's not too late to return to me. Look at verse 7. They ask, wherein shall we return? Wherein shall we return? God, I didn't know that we moved. Really? You think you've arrived at perfection? You're so filled with pride that you don't think there's room for improvement? Hey, if you're not changing... You're not growing. We're to be transformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so if you're not closer to the Lord now than you were last year, then something's wrong. And God says to these people that, that you have left me. And they say, hey, hey, where have we left you, God? Wrong answer. And so God's answer back to them in verse 8. He says, will a man rob God? Yet have you robbed me. God says, let's just start with your money. And they respond, God, how have we robbed you in verse 8? And his answer is, you've robbed me by not giving tithes and offerings. Now, if you've been a Christian very long, you heard someone somewhere, radio, TV, a blog, and they'll say something like, well, tithing isn't for today. Tithing was for the Jews under Moses' law. Well, let's see what the Bible says. If you would, turn to page 3 of your notes Nine biblical facts about the tithe. Real quick. Number one, it means a tenth. Ten percent. Forty-one times it's used in the Bible. Number two, it describes the gift of ten percent of your income at your first opportunity. The first portion of your income belongs to God. He owns it. Deuteronomy 14 says if you're out of town, you make provision, you get it to, to God's house. The idea, don't keep God's money at your house, get it to his house. Number three, it symbolizes God's ownership. You say, doesn't God own everything? Sure he does. It's all God's. And when I give a tithe, I am, I am acknowledging that I believe that God owns it all. And if I withhold it, I might get the idea that it doesn't belong to God, it belongs to me. Number four, it's to be off the top. Uh, honor the Lord with thy substance and the first fruits of all thine increase, Proverbs 3, 9. You know that you're supposed to tithe before Uncle Sam gets his part. You're supposed to tithe before you give to your pension plan. Number five, it's a universal principle. It's not just for Jews in the Old Testament. The Old Testament law was for Jews that came to Moses, uh, but tithing goes back to the beginning. All you have to do is read the book of Genesis. Abraham brought tithes to Melchizedek. That's a picture of Christ. Jacob gave tithes to God as well. Now, Stephen Olford, uh, Billy Graham called him his, uh, the greatest influence upon his ministry life was this man. Look what he wrote. The principle of tithing is timeless. It is for every man in every age. It was neither instituted by law nor terminated by the age of grace. It was neither given by Moses nor discontinued by Jesus Christ. 
Tithing was both incorporated into the law of Moses and into the New Testament church. Number six, uh, truths about tithing. It was practiced throughout church history. Number seven, it is a thermometer of your spiritual health. That's according to Jesus in Matthew 6, 21. You, you know, some of you might not, might not like what I'm preaching today, but if you believe what Jesus said and you obey it, you're going to come to me someday in heaven and say, Thank you, Pastor, uh, that I listened to the Word of God and I now have treasure in heaven. But if your attitude is, well, I, I'll give a tithe. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to give it. I give a tithe, then God's going to make my car uh, just never break down, and it's going to make my appliances work forever. If you think that, you have a confused idea of giving to God. I, I, learned, I learned to to give a tithe when I was a teenager. And young people, this is the best time to learn it. It's the easiest time because you make so little, right? <laughs> and when you, if you learn it now, it's good. But you know, you know, I've been tithing since I was a teenager, but my car breaks down. Uh, my appliances wear out as well. Uh, we just had a microwave break on us. How many have ever had a microwave break when you raise your hand? My first time. My first, you handymen would be so proud of me. I was able, with the help of YouTube, I was able to install the microwave. It only took me two hours. Now, I'm not talking about just setting it on a counter, all right? All right, anybody can do that. So, uh, but, but things will break down. But we tithe because we believe what God says. And then number eight, it's important to God. Uh, Matthew 23, 23, Jesus confirmed the tithe. Uh, read Joshua 7 about Achan. When Joshua led the Jews into the land, God says, Jericho is my tithe. Don't take anything from Jericho. But one guy did. You know his name? It was Achan. I saw, I took, I hid, I coveted, and God had him put to death. He said, oh, that's Old Testament. Well, then come to the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. What did they lie about? They lied about their giving. And the Spirit of God struck them dead for their lying about giving. You see, it's a serious thing to God. And then number nine, it's the starting place for New Testament giving. Now, I'm not preaching law to you. I'm preaching grace to you. Whatever you find in the New Testament is, is amplified then from the Old Testament, right? I mean, in the Old Testament, uh, the Bible says, the Bible says, don't kill. In the New Testament, it's amplified. Don't even hate in your heart. In the Old Testament, it says, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. In the New Testament, it's amplified. Uh, guard against lust. In the Old Testament, it says, give a tithe. Do you think God's going to take it and say, well, in the New Testament, you only got to give 4.5%. You know? <laughs> no, he's going to say give generously. He's going to say give abundantly. Give generously. So this is not a message to get something from you. Generous giving to God, it's going to help you grow spiritually. That's what the Bible says. It'll be a great day for you when you learn that 90% with you and God is more than 100% when you're on your own. Okay, so let's go to the New Testament. What are the New Testament principles on giving? Give on the Lord's Day, 1 Corinthians 16.2. Now, if you, if you do online giving, then it's here by Sunday. That works fine. Number two, as unto the Lord. We give unto the Lord. I don't give to church. I don't give to church. I give to God through my church. And when you give to Valley Forge Baptist, you're giving to the Lord. As an independent, Bible-believing church, you have a vote. You have a say in how the money is used to spread the gospel. We don't send a percentage of what we just gave today in our worship and giving. We don't send a percentage to some headquarters in Detroit or New York or Rome. We don't do that. That is not biblical. We don't send a percentage to some mother church in Chicago so we can borrow their name locally. That's not biblical. We don't do that. Uh, we are autonomous. We are independent uh, under God. We just had a business meeting. Every church member had a vote. Uh, every visitor, every regular attender, welcome to attend that business meeting. 
We have the financial guidelines posted on the bulletin board. We have the income and expense uh, of the last quarter. It's posted down there. Very trans transparent. We have a CPA that reviews the books every year. Why? Because it's God's, and we want to do everything decently and in order. Uh, number three, uh, as the Lord prospers. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. As your abundance increases, so does your giving. So as I have more, I give more. And then number four is sacrificially. Sacrificially. Mark chapter 12. Is there anything that you have given up in your life because of your giving? I mean, if you buy everything and you charge everything and every want and desire and whim, and then you decide to start giving, that's too late. There's no sacrifice in that. That's a me first and God second attitude. And you have wonderfully seen and heard today the widow who came to the temple in Mark chapter 12. And she gave. And you know, you know what she did? She gave a mite. We're talking about a penny. And she's probably feeling like it doesn't have any value. And I want you to know that her story is still speaking to hearts. And so when Jesus saw the widow, he's telling his disciples, by the way, Jesus watches the offering. He watched the offering. He watched what they gave. And he watched this guy. Did you see how the guy gave it in the video? Yeah. Wants everyone to know. And Jesus says, you know what? This woman... This widow woman, she gave more because she gave sacrificially. Those other guys, they gave out of their abundance. Now, let me tell you how this works. There's a lady who, let's go back to it. There's this lady who came to me this morning after the first service, and she said, Pastor, you know, she got saved about, about four weeks ago, and she said, she said, I am so poor. And she said, after last week, I was feeling like, I, I don't belong here. I am so poor. But in discipleship, she was talking with her disciple, and she said, I, I remember this story about this widow, and I was telling my disciple about it. And then she said, Pastor, and I came today, and I, I saw that video, and I heard your wife sing. And she said, I belong here. I belong here. I want to get baptized. I want to become part of the church. You see, God sees the sacrifice he sees the sacrifice. One more, uh, and that is, in the New Testament, the Bible says we are to give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. What do, you say, doesn't God love everybody? Well, sure he loves everybody. But here it specifically says God loves a cheerful giver. What does that mean? Well, when you figure it out, you tell me. All right? <laughs> he loves everybody, but here he specifically said he must have a special kind of love for happy givers. And I hope, I hope you are a, a happy giver. That's a New Testament giver. Give cheerfully. So generous giving, it's going to test your faith. And before we leave Malachi, look at verse, verse 9. It's something I, I just want to clarify. God says to these people, Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me. Now may I say very clear, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are not cursed. Why? When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he became a curse for us. He took our curse. Do you see how much he loves you? He took your hell when he died upon the cross, and he offers the gift of heaven. You cannot become a Christian by getting baptized or giving money or being good. But I want you to know the truth that we find here. Jesus took our curse... And he paid the penalty for our sin, and he has freed us from the penalty of sin. He is freeing us from the power of sin, but he has not yet freed us uh, from the presence of sin. And we are going to reap consequences for our actions, good and bad. And God says, you're robbing me here in verse 9. And so they should be asking, what should we do? What should we do? And verse 10 is the answer. God says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse their place of worship. That's the temple. In the New Testament, the storehouse is the New Testament church. We know that from Acts 5. They brought it to the apostles. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It doesn't belong to some parachurch organization. 
doesn't belong to some radio station, radio preacher, mission board. It doesn't even belong to just missions. Every few years, someone comes to me and says, I, I designate all my giving to missions. That makes no sense. Don't you want the lights to work when we come to worship? Don't you want heat when it's zero degrees outside? Don't you want air conditioning when it's 100 degrees outside? And if everybody did that philosophy, we'd have to close our doors. We'd have no ministry. Let's just do what God says. The tithe belongs to God for the support of the local ministry. And notice what he says next. That, that there may be meat in my house, that is food. They tithe of their food to feed the priests. Uh, they're at the temple to have meat. But notice what he says next. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord. Prove me. Test me. Put me to the test. What does this mean? I thought God says we're not supposed to test him. I thought Jesus at his, at his temptation, uh, he said, thou shalt not, what? Not tempt the Lord thy God. You're not supposed to tempt God. So how can God say, don't tempt me, and then here he says, tempt me. How, how does that work? Well, let's just say it this way, make it real clear. We are not supposed to tempt God. We are not supposed to put God to the test unless he tells me, put me to the test. And this is the only time in the Bible where God says to you and me, I want you to put me to the test. Let me illustrate it. In medieval times, when a knight issued a challenge over some issue, he would take off his metal glove and he would, he would throw it down in front of the person. It's called throwing down the gauntlet. And they would literally walk up to the other person and take off the glove and throw it down and say, right now, right here, let's, let's settle this. And this is what God is doing to us. He, in essence, is saying, you don't think I'm a good and faithful provider? You don't think I, I, I know what you make? You don't think I'll provide for your needs? And God throws down the gauntlet, throws down this promise, and he says, you test me in this. You test me, and I'll take care of you, and I'll bless you. It is intense, but it is meant to grow our faith. And then look at the result in verse 10 with me. If I will not... Open your window, the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall be, not be room enough to receive it. What a picture. What a picture. A symbol of God's blessings upon us. The rainfall is a picture of the blessings of God coming down. God says, I want to open up the windows of heaven, pour blessings down upon you like rain. Hey, is this where you want to live? Do you want to lay up treasure in heaven are you willing to believe and test God? When you do, you will learn things about the Lord. You will experience things about God that you've not seen or known. It's a great journey to be on, to let God be in control. When you see God meet your need and you begin to talk about God, and God did this for me and God did that for me and God's blessed me this way. It's a great way to live. It's a great way to live. Ties and offerings. It's a test of your love. It's not a test of, well, well, when I make a certain amount of money, then I'll begin to tithe. No, no, no. Many of you, like me, you learned this when you were young. Some of you learned it as children. Some as teenagers or single adults. Some of you have been doing this for years. Some of you have been doing it for decades. 35 years ago, my salary was $13,000 a year. You know, some of you, some of you buy used cars and you spend more than that on a used car. You don't wait till you make a certain amount. You just start now. And so for those of you who are faithful giving, I'm here to tell you, you've got treasure in heaven. You've got treasure in heaven. And if this message is like a shocker to you, I want you to know, you can start today and begin to lay up treasure in heaven. Do you have treasure in heaven? More importantly, the question is, are you going to heaven? And only trusting and only following Jesus Christ will take you to heaven. Hey, it's a narrow way. It's a narrow way, but it is the right way. Next week, what about spending money on myself? We'll see what God has to say about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for your promises. And I thank you for the encouragement you give to those 
those who, who love you and believe your truth and for years, possibly decades, have been laying up treasure in heaven, seeing souls saved week after week because of their investment. And Father, I pray for those who, who are learning this truth for the new time. Give them faith, give them obedience. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, you'd say, Pastor, if I died, I know I'd go to heaven. I'm saved. I'm not ashamed to call Jesus Christ my Lord and my Savior. Would you simply raise your hand all over the auditorium? God bless you. Thank you. You may put your hands down. Now, if you're here and you're not sure that, that heaven is your home, God wrote the Bible to take away your doubts, to give you faith. If you're not sure that heaven is your home, the Spirit of God is convicting you in your heart to receive his forgiveness. Right now, right here, you can believe God's promise. You can receive Christ. And would you simply raise your hand? I want to call upon the Lord right now. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to be saved. Anyone at all, just hold your hand up high for a moment. I'd like to receive Jesus as my Savior. God bless you. Anyone else? I would like to receive Jesus as my Savior. Pray with me right where you're seated. You can pray with me. You as well. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart become my Lord and Savior. Please save me today. Father, thank you for the power of the Word of God. Teach us to walk in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have a Bible, please open to the book of Ruth tonight, Ruth chapter 4. Uh, Ruth is found right after the book of Judges. In fact, the events of the book of Ruth happened during the days of Judges. Tonight we begin a new Sunday night series entitled, David, A Man After God's Own Heart. There is so much that all of us can learn and be challenged from the life of David. And so we begin tonight with David's family tree. David's family tree. What kind of family heritage did David come from? And so I want you to see in the next slide here, uh, David's, oh, we missed the one with the question mark. Don't have that one. There it is. David's godly family tree. But I want you to see the question mark. Was it a godly family tree? Would you please stand with me tonight? Ruth chapter 4, there's a saying that Every family tree has some sap running through it. <laughs> or another saying, that old so-and-so is the nut that fell from the family tree. So if you've ever done gene gene genealogical research on your family tree you, tree, you might not like what you find out. And so let's take a peek at David's godly family tree. Was it godly? Ruth chapter 4 in Ruth chapter 4, what we have here, we have Boaz took Ruth as his wife, and they have a son. I'll pick it up in verse 14. Ruth 4, 14. And the women said unto Naomi, and that would be Ruth's mother-in-law, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child, laid it in her bosom, and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. They called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez begat Herzon, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab, 
and Aminadab begot uh, Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask that our hearts be open uh, these coming weeks to hear your message you have for us from the life of David. There's so much we can identify with, so much we can learn. And I pray that we'll find encouragement, we'll find inspiration, uh, we'll find a challenge to not live for ourselves, but to live for you. If there be one here tonight that knows not Jesus as their Savior, Lord, may your spirit bring great conviction and bring them to yourself. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. David, why learn about David? Well, it is extremely important, I believe, for several reasons. Uh, David had an incredible relationship with God. He's the only one in the Bible with that designation, a man after God's own heart. His songs, his poetry, uh, they inspire us to worship the Lord in a greater way. And since we believe that loving God with all of our heart is the most important thing in life, it is the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, then David is the right man for us to study because he had that relationship then we can learn from him. Number two, uh, why learn about David? David was an extremely complex man. He was a warrior. He's also a musician. That typically doesn't go hand in hand. He was capable of the highest of, of loyalty, and he also tripped and fell into some very dark sins. In David, in David we see the, the best of mankind. In David, we see the worst of mankind. As we get to know David, we learn more about ourselves. Here's a third reason why we should study David. David has a unique relationship to Jesus Christ. As a shepherd and as a king, uh, David is a type of Christ. David was given some wonderful promises about, about being the heir uh, or the uh, ancestor of Jesus Christ and also some incredible promises for the future millennial kingdom to be a co-ruler with Jesus in that 1,000-year millennial kingdom. Incredible promises. And we too will learn more about our Savior as we learn about David and also our role in that future kingdom. And one final reason to study David, to learn about David, number four, David is in the Bible. I mean, he's in the Bible. God gave us his, his word to bring us salvation. Romans 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the Bible has so much to say about David more than any other Old Testament character. There are 66 chapters about David in the Old Testament. There are 59 references to him in the New Testament. You think about that, God spent two chapters to describe the creation of the world and 66 chapters to tell us about David. You find him throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and about half of our Psalms reveal his heart and love for God and his word. So, so what do we know about David's home, about his family tree? How did a teenage boy on the backside of a hill in Bethlehem get the attention of God in heaven during the reign of King Saul, what were the influences that would come into his life? Well, first of all, clearly it's his home. His dad is named Jesse. He had six older brothers. Now, for all of us, all of us who are the youngest, would you just raise your hand if you are the youngest in your family? Okay, uh, we understand some things that the rest of you do not understand, <laughs> and we'll learn more about that uh, in, in the future. Uh, his home, his culture. Uh, Saul was anointed king at the end of the period called the Judges. What was life like during the period of the Judges? Do you remember? Was it a good time spiritually? Uh, not so much. Judges 21, 25. Every man did that which was right where? In his own eyes. It was a, it was a carnal time. It was a a horrible time spiritually. It was a, the darkest period spiritually for Israel. And Samuel is the last judge of the period of the judges. He anoints Saul king, 
And then he also anoints David. So we have his home, we have his culture, we have his job. David spent many days and nights away from family, away from friends. Why? He was shepherd of a few family sheep. One more would be his personal choices. David made some decisions about his relationship to God. He, he didn't have much education. He, lear he learned enough to read and to write. Uh, what little he had, he just gave it to God. He didn't have any musical training, but he wrote some songs and he played on a harp. And we sing many of those same songs today just with different melodies. But for just a moment, let's consider now his family tree. That first point. So we have his home, his culture, his job, his personal choices. What about David's family tree? Uh, David's father, uh, as you see here, is Jesse. He, David is called the son of Jesse. David's grandfather is a, name, a man by the name of Obed. I just read that to you here in Ruth 4. And David's great-grandfather is Boaz. Now, I don't know that David would have ever met Boaz because Dave, uh, oh, uh, Boaz was an older man when, when he got married. And so that is what brings us to the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Now, now this is where his family tree gets interesting. We have some details about Ruth, don't we? Uh, Boaz is a godly great-grandfather. And Ruth is a pagan great-grandmother who turns to the Lord. And so just a quick summary, turn back a page to Ruth chapter 1. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, as I mentioned, that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife is Naomi, and the name of his two sons are Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And so what you have here is got a famine in Bethlehem. Now we don't know for certain if the famine is a direct judgment of God, but as you read Deuteronomy, the Bible says, if you don't follow me, uh, I could bring judgment upon the land, and that judgment could include famine. So the famine may or may not have been a direct result of, of the people of Israel turning away from God. We have famine, and we know that they're going now to leave. Elimelech decides to take his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Malon and Chilion, to Moab, pagan territory. Where is that? Well, uh, it's on the other side of the Dead Sea. That is on the east side of the Dead Sea. Look what happens here, verse 3. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. So he leaves his home. He goes to pagan territory. Hopefully he can get a job and get some food for his family. And he dies. And she, Naomi, was left and her two sons. What happens next? The sons take Moabite wives. Verse 4, and they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other is Ruth. And they dwelled there about 10 years. So the two sons disobey God, and they marry pagan, idolatrous wives. And after 10 years, the, the devastation even grows. There's no children out of these marriages. Verse 5, and Malon and Chilion died. Also, both of them and the woman, Naomi, was left of her two sons and her husband. Wow. You got famine, you leave your home, go to the foreign country, your husband dies, your two sons marry, they die. What do you do? You are penniless. You are poor. And she says to her two daughter-in-laws, I am going home. Mara is what they should call me, bitter. You need to go back to your parents. Now, now look at this, Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. And Ruth said to her mother-in-law, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. And thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Uh, some of the most beautiful 
language that has ever been written about love and loyalty. Love and loyalty. And that's from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. How much more should it be among marriage and family? What loyalty, what love? Ruth made the decision. I'm going to leave my home. I'm going to leave my birthplace. I'm going to leave my pagan religion. I'm going to leave my family in order to be with Naomi, and I'm going to embrace the Jewish faith. That tells us something about Naomi's faith, doesn't it? What a testimony. They return to Bethlehem only to find themselves hungry. Their future is bleak. It is, the situation is desperate. <coughs> but God had allowed under Levitical law for poor people to be able to uh, go into the time of barley harvest and to glean sheaves uh, of, of, uh, of the crops, uh, barley and wheat and oats, uh, the remnants. They became known as the handfuls of purpose. Now, where did the Moabites come from? You know about that. They are descendants of Lot. And that's a pretty tragic story found in the book of Genesis. Lot's daughters chose a path of unrighteousness. Lot's daughters chose a path of immodesty, to say the least. In contrast, Ruth is the epitome of modesty. Boaz now notices this virtue in her. When they, when they met, he complimented Ruth on his kindness, her kindness to Naomi, and her testimony of love and loyalty. You'll find that in chapter 2, verse 11. And so what you have is, is the bad news happens in chapter 1, and then uh, chapters 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. It really is the love story of the sovereignty of God at work bringing uh, these two individuals together, and they marry, as I read to you from chapter 4. Upon the return of Naomi to her homeland, Ruth, in, in her selfless act, leaves everything behind, accompanies her grieving mother-in-law who lost everything, and she makes sure that she doesn't return alone. So Ruth, she is this descendant of Moab. Uh, Moab is a nation of whom it was said, I'm going to read it to you, Deuteronomy 23, 3 and 4, a Moabite may not come into the congregation of the Lord. The Moabites... Uh, mistreated the Jews when they had left Egypt uh, years earlier. And so God says, you, you just stay away from them. You stay away from them. They've chosen paganism. Now, I want you to, to, uh, to know that, that um, there are some lessons we can learn from the great-grandparents. And so you got, you got Boaz, a godly great-grandfather, Ruth, who was a pagan who turns to the Lord. And here's the first lesson, a lesson from Ruth and Boaz that trickles down to David. If you have family that does not follow God, don't go back to their evil ways. If you have family that does not follow God, don't go back to their evil ways. There were, there were, there were two daughter-in-laws, right? And the one went back to the evil ways. It just, this contrast is found just throughout the Bible. You have, you have Cain and Abel. Uh, you have two thieves crucified on either side of Jesus. And one chooses the right way and one chooses the wrong way. You, you have a choice to make. If you have family that does not follow God, don't, don't go back to those evil ways. Learn from Ruth and see what she did. What about your parents? What about your grandparents? Did they know the Lord or not? Second lesson. You are not destined to be stuck by your past. You are not destined to be stuck by your past. You know that, that Ruth, Ruth was an idolater. She prayed to statues. She is a descendant from Lot and, and all that, that horrible story. But she's not stuck in her past. What have you done? What have you done that you are so thankful that the blood of Jesus Christ has washed your sins away? That the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you and forgiven you and given you a brand new start? Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? The mercy of God. There is no sin that can be committed in the church age that cannot be forgiven, and you can, you can walk away from it. You, you do not have to be stuck. Jesus said, 
I've come to give you life. I've come to set you free. I've come that you can, you can walk in the Spirit of God that I will give to you. You can start a whole new beginning. You may be, you may be the first one in your godly family tree to say, it wasn't so good back there, but starting now, we're going this way. First generation believer, you can be that. Ruth did, and so can you. One more, one more, and this comes from Boaz. If you have family that does follow God, thank God for your foundation and keep growing closer to the Lord. If you have family that does follow God, thank God for your foundation, that spiritual foundation, and you just keep growing closer to the Lord. Sadly, many kids... Many grandkids, great-grandkids, they fall away from the Lord. They are responsible for that. They've been given this great spiritual foundation. And this is the foundation that God gave to David. So he can go back, he can go back four generations. He's got Jesse, he's got Obed, and he's got Boaz. And I have a hunch David got to meet Ruth. I think he got to meet Ruth. I think of John MacArthur. He has done an incredible job in giving us the MacArthur New Testament commentary set. You know, he grew up here in Philadelphia. He is a fifth-generation preacher. That's a godly heritage that he has built upon. Think of that. What he learned from dad and grandfather. But there's one more thing you need to know, and that is Ruth chapter 4, verse 21. Does it mean anything to you? Ruth, uh, back to Ruth chapter 4, verse 21. And Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Now hold your finger here and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse Matthew 1 is the genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. <coughs> and then I'm going to show you a chart. So, so Matthew 1, 1, this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Judah. <coughs> Drop down to uh, verse 5. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rachel. Boaz begat Obed, you've seen that, of Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. David the king begat Solomon. Okay, so what you have here is we have another addition. So we're going to go to the, the, uh, uh, the chart. And uh, so we know that, that uh, uh, there's Joseph and Mary, and they, they trace their lineage back to David and Bathsheba. And so now David, you see his dad there, Jesse, and you see his dad there, Obed, and you see his dad there, Boaz. Now you go up one more, what do you see? Salmon and, and Rachab is a different spelling for Rahab. Now to get the story of Rahab, where do you have to go? Where? Joshua. Uh, Joshua fought the battle of, and the walls came tumbling down. Well, most of them, Right? Most of them came tumbling down. Rachab, Rahab, Matthew 1, 5, is the wife of Salmon, and Salmon is this ancestor of, of uh, Boaz. Now, she lived in the oldest city in the world, Jericho. And like her future daughter-in-law, descendant, she was also a pagan worshiping pagan gods. And when the two spies, you know the story, they came into town uh, because uh, Moses had sent in 12 spies, and when they came back, uh, 10 spies discouraged the whole people. And so now you fast forward a few years, a few decades, and, and um, Joshua says, I'm not going to make that mistake. So he sends two spies in, and the two spies uh, spy the, uh, uh, the city of Jericho, and they hide in a woman's house named Rahab. And so she believed that that Jehovah God is going to take this city, and because she hid them, uh, we find that she's even in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. She hid them. 
And God put her in Hebrews 11 for her faith, not for her lying. And the spy said, when we come back to take this city, you put a scarlet cord, a red cord outside your window, and we will protect you and all of your family. I want you to see it. This part of the wall did not fall down. This part of the wall did not fall down because what happened is she believed and all her house. And so there in Jericho, the oldest city of the world, and, and if you've been to Israel, some of you had opportunity to go uh, to Jericho. And I mean, the ruins, there's, there's multiple places there, but, but there are some archaeologists who say, you know, here's this wall in this one particular period that didn't fall down. And we just have to wonder, was it... Was it Rahab's wall? You see, it, it's almost like a double wall, and you have, you have houses in between. And so out of the window, she puts out the red scarlet cord. What is that a picture of? That's the blood of Jesus Christ. Didn't we sing about that tonight? And so the blood of Jesus Christ is going to be now in this genealogy, in this ancestry of, of Rahab. And Rahab marries Salmon. Now we have a time problem, and that time problem can be solved. But what I want you to know, first of all, is, is that red scarlet cord, what it tells us about the grace of God, what it tells us about the forgiveness of God, uh, what it tells us about the mercy of God. You, you never give up on God because he will never give up on you. If you fall, no, 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 when you fall, when you fall, you just get back up, because Jesus Christ is not going to give up on you. A just man falls seven times, and he rises back up again. And so we have it, even with the apostles. Peter, denying the others, fleeing. God still loved them. God still used them. So here's the time problem. And so you have, you have the beginning of the conquest of the land, and then you got about 300-plus years. And so... So how in the world, how in the world could, could Salmon and Rahab be the parents of Boaz? So one possibility, you have two choices. One possibility is Boaz, Obed, and Jesse, they're about 110 when they had their son. It's one possibility. It could happen. Probably not the solution. There are some gaps in the family tree record. And although it was possible for them to have sons in there as centurions more than 100 years the other possibility is this Matthew may have skipped some names just as he skipped three names in verse 8 and one name in verse 11 according to scholars the Greek word translated father can also mean grandfather or ancestor unlike today ancient Jewish writers they often telescoped they telescoped the genealogies that is they shortened them to the most important names. So was Rahab the mother of Boaz? Well, she was his mother, or she is most likely his grandmother or his ancestress, great-grandmother. And one of the people of God used by God to mold Boaz's extraordinary tenderness for the foreign widow named Ruth. Do you get that? So out of, out, of his, out of Boaz's family tree, he's got to think, hey, am I, again, it could be Grandpa Salmon. He took that Jericho woman named Rahab because she turned to the Lord. And so if he can do it for her, then he could do it for me with Ruth. Do you see that? What you do does impact the next generation. Also in Hebrew, the word for son can mean descendant. Now, God knows every name from Adam to Jesus. And he did not think it necessary for us to know every specific name. But he did include the ones of the, the names that he wanted us to know. And so this is the family tree of David. So between his family, between his distaste for the culture, his own personal choices, David is a teenager. He just says, you know, I'm going to love God. I'm going to love God so much because this is what I choose. And David, as a teenager, loves God so much that, that God chooses him to be the next king to replace King Saul. And so I want to leave you with this tonight. 
what choices are you going to make this week that will please God? So we have the family, we have the culture, we have the job. It really comes down to your choices. Those influences may be good, they may not be so good. You have a choice. What choices will you make this week that will please God? You see, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for someone whose heart is set on loving God and serving God. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for, for David. I thank you for his godly family tree. Though not perfect, men and women who made decisions to please you and impact the next generation and the next generation. And now, 3,000 years later, we are blessed. We are inspired. We're challenged. So, Father, I pray that we'll consider our personal choices just as a teenage boy did on the hillside of Bethlehem all by himself under the stars, thinking about who you are, thinking about what you've done. So, Lord, help us to examine the decisions we will make this week in light of the truth that we know. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. So, Father, help us. Help us to be like David. Choose the good and the right way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.